Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it gives us direction, gives us insight, understanding those things that we are in such need of. We pray that we would not quickly lose it, but we would hold on to it. And Father, you were the one who created us and gave us our minds. And I pray that you would help us all to have minds that are fully operational to retain this information. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are in John chapter 11. And in John chapter 11, you have Lazarus, Mary, Martha. You have the Jews that are there. This is the chapter that deals with the resurrection, or excuse me, the raising from the dead of Lazarus. Not the resurrection, because the resurrection takes place, or it began with Jesus Christ. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. The second part of that resurrection is the rapture of the church. The third part of that resurrection is after the tribulation period where the saints who have been beheaded for their faith in Jesus Christ, according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, they are raised from the dead to rule and reign with Christ a thousand years along with us. And so that is the resurrection. That is the first resurrection. And just as a side note, the second resurrection takes place after the thousand-year reign of Christ and after the the heavens and the earth are destroyed. I was listening to the book of Job today, and it even says that in there, where you had uh, Job's friends come and talk to him. And they said, uh, when one of them was talking, that this place where the judgment happens, it won't happen until everything is destroyed. So the book of Job says that as well. It's not only in the New Testament. Uh, going on here, this bringing back to life of Lazarus, it was the most under, misunderstood incident that was taking place. Now, this happens after the restoration of the blind man. And Thomas, he misunderstood. Martha misunderstood. Mary misunderstood. The Jews misunderstood. The chief priests and the Pharisees misunderstood. And as it gets into the next chapter, uh, there's a little more misunderstanding that takes place there. But if you are familiar with the story, we're going to answer questions such as, why did Jesus delay his coming uh, in helping Lazarus? And why did Jesus say that Lazarus was only asleep? Uh, those you probably may know the answer to one or both of those but in John chapter 11 verse 1 this is where the death of Lazarus is taking place now a man named Lazarus was sick he was from Bethany a village of Mary and her sister Martha this Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair and this is going to be taking place in the next chapter So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. So Jesus had a close relationship with this family. Uh, This family, if, if Jesus had a best friend, so to speak, that was apart from work, His friends at work were his disciples, and he considered them his brothers, so to speak. But having a really good friend, apparently, it was Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, because that's where he would stay. And it is uh, written down here in the first six verses that Jesus loved them. And that is, it's 
peculiar that he would point out a particular person, John uh, the Apostle here as he writes this. He would point out just a few people because, you know, also in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But there's special note about these particular people. So there was a, a close family relationship. And if a male in the family were to die back then, it could be disastrous. Even today, it can be disastrous. But especially back then, because women in that particular culture did not have the same standing as men unless they were wealthy. And we know that uh, Mary had some means because she had a very expensive jar, uh, alabaster jar, uh, full of this fragrant perfume and usually is used as some type of dowry. Uh, when you get married, it's uh, something to fall back on if necessary. But anyhow, uh, these were Jesus' friends. Now, a miracle is going to be performed here, and the purpose of all miracles is to glorify God. That's number one on your list there. In John chapter 11, verse 4, when he heard this, Jesus said, The sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified. Secondly, God's timing is not our timing. You see how Jesus delayed this? Now, when he was talking to his disciples in verse 4, it appears that Lazarus was already dead uh, at this point because when Jesus showed up, he had been dead for four days. And so word got to him, and probably when word got to him, Lazarus had expired at that time. And so God's timing is not our timing. A request made, a reply is sought, and the Lord waits. And this is often the case. If you take Job, for instance, um, does anybody know or has anybody read lately the book of Job and how long he probably suffered? Now, what he suffered from was his children were taken. He had seven sons and three daughters. And there was a storm that came and flattened the house and killed all of his children. And then his camels were taken by three raiding parties and all of his possessions, basically everything he had was taken from him. And so he had to wait under that. And if you remember the story of Job, he tried to justify himself and call upon God to answer why he's being persecuted because he's been a righteous man. And his buddies were saying how wicked he was if he just confesses it's going to be okay. And the last guy, Elihu, I think is his name, that guy is just full of wisdom. And he's the youngest, and he thought he would wait. But anyhow, it's a great story. You should go back and read that. I heard it today. I was just, I was touched by listening to everything that was said. But he had to wait. Now, when these guys showed up, they sat there with him for a week. So we know that he was sick and firm for a week because he got the boils and everything else after that. And they, they rested with him. So this illness was probably couple of months that he was sitting there and they would talk to him and they'd say confess your sins and he goes I'm a righteous man and you can't convince me that I have done anything wrong or have any evidence like that and and he's calling upon God you know why are you doing this to me and he didn't get an answer and at the end of the chapter at the end of the book he still didn't get an answer as to why God just told him stand up and gird yourself up I'm going to talk to you prepare yourself like a man because he tried to justify himself and he still wasn't getting any satisfaction. And of course he repented of that at the end and he made intercession for his friends. But there was no answer. He was suffering horribly and he did everything. He was a righteous man before God and yet he was suffering. Or what about Noah? You guys remember how long it took Noah to build the ark? 
100 years. It took him 100 years. He started when he was 500. I think he ended when he was 600. It's, it's about 100 years that it took him. He was a preacher all that time. Not very successful. He evangelized his own family, but for a hundred years there was nothing. Do you think he called out to God and said, God, give me some souls. I mean, come on, do something here. And God did not answer. And it wasn't because he was powerless to do so. It's just the people didn't want to respond. That's why he destroyed the earth, because the wickedness was so much. But he had to wait through that. Now, how long did it rain for? 40 days. How long was he on the ark? 378 days. How long do you think he pleaded with God? God, can we get off this boat? You know, it's like the cruise from Hades or something like that. It just continued and continued. And I'm sure if they were normal, and I think that they were normal, except they lived a little bit longer. They had more time to build up complaints, and they were probably complaining about that time, right? And God still didn't answer, and so they had to wait. So Lazarus, the sisters called for him, had to wait. Jesus wasn't going to show up. Abraham, the same thing. How old was he when he had uh, Isaac and Ishmael? And then how long did he have to wait to see that fulfilled? And he died an old man, you know, and he just had to wait to see these promises brought to fruition. And even though God directly promised these things, he still had to wait. So God's timing is not our timing. If it was up to me or up to you, it would happen instantly. You know, in the United States, how long do you want to wait for your burger in the drive-thru? Do you get a little upset if your coffee takes a little too long at Starbucks or one of these uh, coffee bean or whatever? I've seen people start to get irate when they have to wait like three or four minutes, you know, for something. So God's... God denies also, or excuse me, if God denies, he supplies something greater. Now, these same people, Job lost everything, and I'm sure he was interceding to God as to why he probably didn't get too much of an answer from that eventually even. But God restored everything, and he had twice as much after this trial than before the trial. And he had seven sons and three daughters after that. It was all restored to him. And his daughters, it says, they were the most beautiful in all the land. And if the Bible points out that somebody was beautiful, they were extremely beautiful. Noah saved the human race even though he had not one convert. You know, we're all related to Noah, but that's what he, the reward came. He supplied something greater even though he was denied souls before the flood came. And what about... Um, Manoah's wife, you know, she was barren and sterile in the Old Testament. Now, Manoah is the father of Samson. And Samson became a judge over Israel. Now, some people would say not a very good judge, but he kept God's people intact, being a judge and persecuting the Philistines, who were the arch enemies of the Israelites. And so, even though Samson probably didn't get everything he he wanted, he lost in love, right? That woman, Delilah, just ruined him. And after that, what did he get? Well, he got to judge over the nation of Israel, which eventually produced the Messiah from which we benefit. And so if God denies us in some way, he's going to supply something greater. Fourthly, if God delays answering our request, it is to build trust. 
Abraham received the promise that he would have a son in Genesis chapter 15, verse 4. Uh, He received that promise at age 100. Abraham waited 25 years for the fulfillment of that promise from the first time that he was told. Uh, Going on with this, uh, just a side note here. Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. I have a question for you. Did Lazarus die? This would be a verse that somebody would point to and say, see, there's a contradiction in Scripture. Jesus said he would not die or it would not end in death is what he said. But he died. And he said this sickness will not end in death. Do you guys want to take a stab how you would respond to this? And you may get it, you may not, it's okay. I'm just kind of curious. Karen, you have another one? You had a good answer on the last one. I was thinking because he knew that he could raise him from the dead no matter what, he was going to be alive. But did he die? Now, see, if I was an atheist and I didn't like the Bible, I would say it's still a contradiction because he said it wouldn't end in death. <laughs> well, that, that's the closest we can get. If for something like this, you have to go back to the original language and see what it says. Now, if Jesus said this sickness would not end in death, you might have a case. But he said something closer to this sickness will not eventuate in death, which means after it's all said and done, the death is not going to be permanent, is what he's saying. And so it, it all depends on the Greek structure, the Greek words that are given, and you have to go back and look at that. So if somebody has an objection as to some perceived contradiction, you have to be able to say something like, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to go find out, and there's usually a reasonable answer for all these seeming contradictions which are in Scripture. Also, this Greek word can mean weakness or frailty or strengthless or a malady. And so when he says this strengthless or strengthlessness will not end in death, what he's saying is the, the weakness of the human body that Lazarus possesses will not eventuate in death on this trial. That's what's being communicated here. Now here the disciples misunderstood. In verse 7, it reads, Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there. Jesus answered, Are are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Now, they recognize that these Jews wanted to kill Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you know, why are we need to go back? And the disciples are going, why would you go back? They didn't understand the purpose of him going back to Lazarus. Now, if you know your geography there, if you go to Jerusalem proper, if you head directly east, you'll run into the Mount of Olives. And just on the other side is Bethany. It's like two miles away. It's not very far. Uh, You can actually see it once you get to the crest of the Mount of Olives. You look over and the Mount of Olives is about 
one mile away as you walk down the road there. As a crow flies, it's probably just a little bit less. And so these disciples, they didn't understand what Jesus was meaning by going back. And are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees the world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. So he's talking about his demise his eventual crucifixion. He's not going to be there. He's the light of the world while he is here. He is going to be the light of the world and everybody will understand what's going on. So he has to go and be a witness. Now, number five there is if it is God's will to go, no matter what the perceived risks might be, we are to go. We are not to hold back. If God says, head out, go do this, and you say, but... You know, it's so dangerous. There could be problems there. Jesus had the example set forth of just go and do it. You know, there's some times where, first of all, we want to hear from God. If he tells us to do something, you want to make sure he's telling you to go, right? We don't want to act foolishly. We don't want to set out and then have to immediately return. What's the purpose in that? We're supposed to go accomplish something and then come back. And you make preparation for all of that, right? Or sometimes people make preparation, go and never come back. And that's what they're supposed to do. Whether you're going to the 1040 window where your life might be in danger, if you give the gospel to somebody, or you're going over to Indonesia and you're going to New Guinea or someplace like that, and you're going to be a missionary, just make sure God has said, okay, go. Now, when you go on things like that, several of these missionaries, if you read their biographies, they lost their spouses and children. How many of us, if we went on a missionary adventure and we lost our spouse or our children, would say, this was clearly a mistake? We don't know that, that it's a mistake. Maybe it was all in God's timing anyhow. All we know is if God tells us to go, we're supposed to go. In seminary, and they did this with us, they made us write down our calling, put it down in writing how God called us, when we're supposed to go, what we're supposed to do, what city we're supposed to be in, all of that stuff. Because the guy who was over this little group, he said, you're going to need to refer back to that. If you don't have that down there, you don't know why you went or where you were supposed to go or what you were supposed to accomplish. And so they would require us to have that as Calvary chapels. They would require us to have that. We didn't go to seminary and say, I think I'll do this as a job. You had to be called. And once you were called, then you went to wherever you were called. And so if God calls us, if it is God's will to go, then go, no matter what the perceived risks may be. We're supposed to head out. And if our lives are lost, well, our lives are lost. That's the way it goes. And here's where Thomas misunderstood, and he also understood. John chapter 11, verse 11. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going where there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. <laughs> of course, they misunderstood what's going on. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Now, why would Jesus use the term sleep? It's because it's temporary. It's not something that's going to eventuate in death. That's why he used sleep. And same thing when we die, Paul calls it falling asleep because it's only going to be temporary. These bodies are going to be resurrected again and transformed. So then he told them plainly, look, 
Lazarus is dead. That's Bill's interjection there. Lazarus is dead. He had to tell them plainly because they just didn't get it. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. You know, he misunderstood. Jesus wasn't taking them there so that they would die. They eventually died. They eventually all were martyred, it is believed, except for John, the apostle whom Jesus loved. Even Thomas, I think his mission went over to India or someplace and um, by church uh, lore, that's apparently where he died. But he misunderstood the purpose of going. He was talking about Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. He gave them a hint. He's only asleep. If he's only asleep, that means it's temporary. That means he's going to raise him from the dead. But they couldn't see it there. You know, when you're right in the midst of it, you usually can't see and have the proper perspective. But from where we are, we got 20-20 vision looking back at this New Testament event. And so we have a little bit of an advantage, but Thomas didn't understand either. But he did understand this fact. It's number seven. I'll skip over one. Thomas misunderstood the purpose of returning to Jesus, and I already gave you that. But number eight, Thomas did understand that following Jesus may result in suffering or death. I'm going to go back to number six and just give you that, and I'll comment on it and then head back. Jesus was glad for the sake of his disciples, not that Lazarus had died. And so when he says, I'm glad I wasn't there, it wasn't for Lazarus' sake. Lazarus was sick. When was the last time you were sick and you thought you were going to die? Well, Lazarus actually did die because of some sickness that he had. He was probably dehydrated, had a high fever, who knows what it was that had overtaken him. But it clearly caused his bodily functions to cease and he died. And Thomas misunderstood this, as I just said. It was not for the disciples to go and die. Jesus would eventually be crucified. And by the way, from chapter 12 on, as John writes it, that's the last week of Jesus' life on earth. So the rest of the gospel there of John is taken up with his last week. And you might think about, well, what would you say if you knew you only had one week to live? What would you tell your family members? What would you tell everybody around you? And Jesus knew that he was going to the cross and he only had one week to live. Now, Thomas did not understand that following Jesus, or excuse me, Thomas did understand that following Jesus may result in suffering or death. And he was willing at the direction of Jesus to put his life in the line. We don't have to do that in the United States, not yet. Um, It's not a country where we're persecuted, but it is an actuality or an actual concern uh, around the globe, wherever you go. And if God calls you, don't worry about that. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear those who can kill both body and soul, which is God. And so we want to make sure, even if he calls us to go somewhere and it can be dangerous, we go. And uh, I told you that um, a couple of weeks ago, Jesus was making the point that doing his Father's will was even more important than bread, which meant doing the Father's will was even more important than life. Job says the same thing back in Job. I keep referring to that because it, it impacted me so much to go through the book of Job again. But both Jesus and Job had this idea of there is nothing more important. 
Look at us in our lives. Okay, I have a garage at my house, and it's full. I have a path. And the path, right now it's about four feet, maybe five feet in some sections that I can get from the garage to the house door on the inside. The other side, it's filled up, right? And I I look at this stuff because being self-employed, you have to have so much stuff. I've whittled it down from three garages. It's now down into one. It's taken several years to do that, Lord willing. It'll only take a few more months to get rid of the extra stuff that's in there. But I spend so much time with that, just like any of you. If you have a garage like that, what do you spend your time doing? Organizing your stuff, right? If you don't have a garage, where do you put your stuff? In the house, in the cabinets, in the shed, under a canopy. You put it somewhere. And we have to build more sheds to hold more stuff. And we spend so much time doing that, and our focus needs to be get rid of the stuff that we really don't need and focus on living a life for Christ. Because when you have stuff, what do you do? My neighbor asked me once, so why don't you guys have stuff like quads and boats and you know trailers and cycles and you know just all kinds of stuff? And I said, I don't want the responsibility. I was talking to... Uh, at the party, I was talking to somebody at the party about Texas and how much house you could get for $135,000. I took one look at this house that he showed me, and I thought, that is nothing but work. There is no way I want to move into a house like that for $135,000 that has like 10 bedrooms and three bathrooms. I'm just going to be taking care of that thing the whole time, and I, I don't want to do it, and it will distract from this life being lived for Christ. So the more we have, the more we get distracted. The less we have, the more we can serve Christ. And so that needs to be our focus. And it's this is not a curse to have that as our focus. You know, we want stuff, but save it for the next life. Well, what do you get in the next life? That's right. I saw it mouth. Everything. You get everything. Not only do we get everything, but Jesus says, come up here, sit with me in my throne. What? You get to sit on God's throne with God? Well, who's on the throne now? A man. Who is God? And he says, he's going to share that with us. So it's a fantastic thing. So even if we go somewhere where our life might be in jeopardy, don't worry about it if you know God has called you to go. Now, not many people get called to go to places like that. Let's take it back like 10 notches. Are are we willing to endure suffering for the sake of Christ from our family members, from people on the street? You know, another little illustration here. Today I read this little blog post from this guy who's 22 years old, raised in the church, used to be there. Now he believes in science. And I I put a verse on there. Uh, They exchanged the glory of God God for created things and worshiped and served them out of the book of Romans. And I posted it on there and I said, it's so sad. Somebody else said, so sad. But I got a couple of thumbs down don't even talk about scripture don't even do that and that's just that's so mild you know to get that you can be anonymous and posting stuff like that and and i 
I get it. And every time I pull something to deal with God, I, did, I posted something that had to do with pro-life, I got some nasty grams back. You know, it's like, who do you think you are? You know, it's like, fuck, I'm just trying to show you what Scripture has to say, basically. And it, it never ends well when you're on a public forum like that. And so this idea of suffering, don't consider it a curse. Matter of fact, this is what we're supposed to consider it. For it has been granted you, or granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. It's been granted to us, like it's a privilege. And so it's not a curse, but it is a privilege. Also, it's commendable. If we suffer for Christ, for doing good, this is commendable before God. First Peter chapter 2, verse 19. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. And Paul was willing to suffer for the sake of the salvation of others to endure suffering. In Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ with eternal glory. Now, these people should be our inspiration. They are my inspiration. That they, they were willing to do anything, to sacrifice anything for the sake of Christ, even bread, whether it be Job or Jesus. Thomas knew that going back to Judea, uh, Jesus might be stoned, and so might he and the disciples, but he was still willing to go, and this is commendable. Going on in verse 17. Here, Martha misunderstood. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. This point, number 10, the physical location of Jesus is not necessary for healing by Jesus. He didn't have to be there to heal. He could have just spoken the words and Lazarus would have been healed. We already had this in Matthew chapter 8, the healing of the centurion's servant. He did it from afar. The centurion said, I'm a man of authority. I have people under me and I tell them to go and they go. I tell them to come and they come. He goes, just speak the words and it'll be done. And Jesus marveled at his faith. And so he didn't have to be there in order for Lazarus to be healed. 11 there, Martha believed that Jesus, what Jesus said, but didn't have faith, he would raise the dead right then. She believed in the resurrection that will take place at the end of time where everybody will be resurrected. Martha did not understand that Jesus had a double meaning when he said, your brother will rise again. Matter of fact, her brother would rise two more times. He would die again once he was risen from the dead, and then he would be resurrected at the general resurrection. Now, uh, some people say, well, is he part of the church? Or is he not part of the church? I think he's part of the church. He'll be resurrected at the rapture. For the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who remain will be taken up to be with the Lord in the air. Now, this is not unprecedented <clears throat> that people would be raised from the dead. Can you guys think of examples of people 
who have been raised from the dead in Scripture that Jesus did not raise from the dead? Anyone? The kid who, yeah, who did that? Well, first, the kid who fell out the window was raised by Paul. And then Elijah, you had the Shunammite, excuse me, the Shunammite woman was with Elisha. But Elijah had this widow. And this widow, she had a little cup of grain and a little flask of oil. And she was going down to pick up, she was picking up some sticks and she was going to make a little cake so that her and her son could die, right? Well, Elijah shows up and says, just go fix me the cake. I know that you think you're going to die, but just go fix me the cake of bread. And so she did. And it never ran dry. That little uh, cup of flour and a little cup of oil never ran dry the whole time that he was there. And not until it rained again did her flour and her oil uh, just give up the ghost, so to speak. It, it wasn't filled up every single day after she used it. And then Elijah, or excuse me, back with Elijah. Elijah then had this boy and this widow that was saved because he was there, but the boy died. And so the widow said, did you come to me just to take away my hope? What is the big deal with that? And so he was concerned. So he took the boy upstairs, put him in a room, laid across him twice, and the boy's body got warmed, and he raised from the dead. Elisha had the same thing with the Shunammite woman. The Shunammite woman was a well-to-do woman, and she set up a little room, her and her husband, for when Elijah would come into town, and he, she would say, stay here. She was very hospitable. And so whenever he came to town, he would stay at this woman's house. Well, her son fell ill. He died. And he was far away, and this woman sent her servant to go get him, and, and he starts coming back, and uh, Gehazi, which was the servant of Elijah, went on ahead and put his rod onto the boy to see if he'd get better. That's what Elijah, Elisha told him to do, and the boy didn't get better. And so when Elisha got there, he laid across him three times, and the boy warmed up, and eventually he recovered. Uh, And so that's two examples in the Old Testament where somebody was raised from the dead. Of course, we have Lazarus, we have Jairus' daughter that Jesus raised, and then Jesus raised himself from the dead along with Paul, and then Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. Yes. There you go. You think there might have been any other cases? Probably. There would be. Do you think that there have been any other cases in the last century? Why haven't you heard about them? What's your first reaction if you hear somebody say, I was in the Amazon River Valley visiting this tribe that had never been visited before and a little boy died and we prayed for him and he rose from the dead. What's your first reaction? Right, yeah, Uh uh-huh. Yeah, really? Uh Uh-huh. How long was he dead? Four days. Uh Uh-huh, okay, yeah. We would be skeptical, right? Because we don't see that. But where this takes place is where God wants him to establish, God wants to establish his word. That's where these miracles take place. If you talk to missionaries on the mission field all throughout history, these things happen on a repeated basis. 
These are not isolated incidents. So I'm sorry for those who say the gift of healing is not for today. I don't believe that. I read these missionary accounts and all of a sudden these people being raised from the dead or being healed and uh, limbs restored or, you know, these types of things. They happen. They just don't happen with us because at first we are skeptical. We, we have a lot of unbelief. We would say to Jesus, I, I want to believe, but help me with my unbelief. And so that's why these things would take place at particular times. John chapter 11, verse 24, we go on. Martha answered, I know he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. See, she misunderstood. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who was to come into the world. You know, it's almost like my brother just died and you're asking me these questions. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said. And he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, in verse 30, Jesus, first of all, was challenging Martha to believe that he had the power over death at any time. That's why he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And she goes, yeah, I know. You are the son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the resurrection. We're all going to raise at the last day. I, you know, I get that. She didn't say last day, but that's kind of what she meant. She did know that God the Father would give Jesus anything that he asked for. But I don't think in her wildest dreams she had hoped that Lazarus would be raised from the dead. Now, John chapter 11, verse 30. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at a place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that he was going to the tomb to mourn there. See, they, they had no clue, even though he's telling them, I'm the resurrection. Oh, he's going to the tomb. He's going to mourn at the tomb. That's what they thought. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Now, this is one of the occasions where Jesus wept. He also wept coming into Jerusalem. And this is not unusual for the Savior. I mean, God is the one who created the ability to grieve. We have that within us. And so that is part of him. We are created in the image of God. We have the capacity to mourn. And that's what Jesus was doing here. It also says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, that he was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And so I, I bet he cried a lot. I mean, crying in our country, it's perceived as um, a form of weakness. I remember growing up, did anyone's brothers in here, if you're a guy, did anyone's brother say, stop crying, you cry baby? Anything like that? I had that. I had three brothers. Well, stop crying, you little crybaby. You know, something like that. Of course, they were like three years older, four years older. And when they're older, they can do things like that and torment us and that type of thing. But this idea of crying in our country is not so hip. As they get older, I say, I don't care. 
doesn't matter to me. You know, you feel it on the inside and you lose your pride a little bit and it's okay. In these Semitic countries, they not only cry, they wail over there. They know how to mourn. And maybe we're a little truncated in that. Maybe we're a little handicapped in that. But uh, Jesus was given to grief and he was given to a great deal of grief. There is some discussion as to why Jesus wept. Some say he knew Lazarus would rise from the dead. So why is he weeping? He he went there to raise him from the dead. What's the purpose of that? Uh, Well, some would say because of the effects of sin and how it has brought death and the pain that comes with it. Others say he was weeping because of the loss of his friend. It was his friend. It was his buddy, Lazarus. Others say he was weeping because Mary was greatly saddened. He was sorry for her. And all the people who were weeping, I mean, everybody was crying at once. Lazarus, I think Lazarus was a well-liked individual. Uh, There were a lot of people there. He probably had some money. He was able to house Jesus and the disciples and take care of them. And like I mentioned previously, Mary had an alabaster jar full of very expensive perfume. And when somebody dies, you know, God does not take pleasure in that. And first, or number 12 there, it says, God grieves because we have become subject to death. That's why he grieves. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32 says, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. God wants all men to repent. He doesn't want a single person to perish. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. His son understands slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so that's God's desire. He wants us to be saved. He doesn't want us to die. He grieves over our death. We will grieve, I believe, when we get to heaven And we see the great white throne judgment. When that's completed, Scripture says, and this is the timing of it, that's my opinion. Scripture says that God will wipe away every tear. I think that's when it happens. Because we will see our loved ones who did not accept Christ go away to eternal or everlasting punishment, according to Matthew chapter 25. And we will be grieving. I think the entirety of heaven will be grieving along with those who are being condemned. I don't think that there's going to be a dry eye in the house, and I think Jesus will be the leader of that, having to condemn these people because he is a righteous judge. And God has a heart, you know, and we want to make sure we don't overlook that. God is not just this God of justice willing to put the thumb on somebody. He grieves, and God is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus was the same before the incarnation as he is after the incarnation. Now here the Jews misunderstood in verse 36. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? In other words, he didn't have the power, is what they were saying. Though past miracles had been done, the Jews thought Jesus was incapable of healing Lazarus or having him rise from the dead. Verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. At this point, deeply moved, it would be like you're weeping and you can't catch your breath. That is what Jesus is experiencing at this particular point. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. 
Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Do you guys know what the uh, King James says? He stinketh. That's right. <laughs> by this time, Lord, he stinketh. And there, and there would be a bad, bad odor. When something dies, usually you know it because of the stench. Verse 40, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. So this is why Jesus showed up. He didn't have to show up. It was the benefit of the people is the reason he was there. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, I will ask you, did Jesus have to raise his voice? Who did he do it for? The people who were there. He, he didn't have to say anything. He could have just taken his hand and like that. He could have said it really low. Come forth, Lazarus. And he would have popped right up. And he came out. Now, how loud was he? The word in the Greek, <laughs> you, will, you will get this, megas. Where do we get our word mega from? From this word. If you have a megaphone, it means it's loud. If you have mega anything, it's big. It's over the top. It's hyperbolic, so to speak. Hyperbole is where uh, Jesus said, take the speck first out of your own eye so you can... Or excuse me, take the log first out of your own eye so you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. He said, take the big redwood out of your own eye so that you can remove the tiny speck out of the other man's eye. That's hyperbole. Uh, another example of hyperbole, if you go uh, through junior high, you get blemishes, right? The vernacular is called <laughs> yeah, you guys know what it is. When you got your first monster, what did you call it? Did people kid you go, look at that monster? And we all have had them. We all still get them, you know, if time to time. And I don't know why I'm talking about this, but it's hyperbole. It's something that you look at and you say, this thing is just massive. You know, if somebody, that woman that was in Cambodia, she had a mega goiter on her neck it was mega it was huge it was the size almost the size of a cantaloupe that was on her neck you know and so that's mega well that's the phrase that is used here and the way it is described when you look up the definition exceedingly great high large and loud so how loud was jesus i mean jesus did everything big you know whether it's raising his voice or using hyperbole or getting in the midst of a feast or festival and yelling and going back and forth. This, this culture is a loud culture, and Jesus was right in there with it. 
going on with this verse 44 the dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face jesus said to them take off the grave clothes and let him go therefore many of the jews who had come to visit mary and had seen what jesus did put their faith in him so lazarus was not resurrected he was resuscitated resuscitated is r-e-s-u-s-c-i-t-a-t-e-d resuscitated Lazarus was not resurrected, he was resuscitated. Because again, as I previously stated, he had to die again. Because he didn't get his glorified body. He didn't go to heaven with Jesus. He simply got his body reconstituted and the stench went away, whatever it was, and he was made whole and then later on he died again. Verse 46, you have here the chief priests and the Pharisees who misunderstood. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is a man performing many miraculous signs. So the chief priests and the Pharisees thought Jesus to be a blasphemer, right? They wanted to turn the people against Jesus. They didn't want the people believing that Jesus was the Messiah. They themselves, although there was evidence enough, refused to believe. And they were more concerned about their earthly power than the power of the Spirit. And so the chief priest just assigned this moniker to Jesus that he was a blasphemer. Verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, they're worried about themselves more than they are about the people being healed miraculously, people being raised from the dead. And of course, as we will see, what did they want to do with Lazarus after Jesus raised him from the dead? We got to kill him too. You know, this is not good that this dead guy's walking around. Everybody knew he was dead and... How obtuse, how blind can you be to what is actually taking place? Well, they were. And they misunderstood the intent that God had, you know, to tell them the way of salvation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. So... He was saying, the Romans aren't going to take anything away. This guy's going to die. He did not say this on his own, verse 51, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. So let me ask you, can an unbeliever prophesy God's word? They can. Can a donkey speak for God? Yes, he can. There's hope for us, right? If God can use, who is a false prophet in the Old Testament that tried to curse the people and he could not? Balaam, that's right. For King Balak, Balak hired him. Go and curse those people. Okay, and so when he gets out there, he opens his mouth and God put the words in his mouth. Now this guy was a prophet for hire. Some people say he's a false prophet. He, you know, he did this for money type of thing. And he could only bless the people because God took over his mouth and he just blessed the people. And of course, <laughs> Balak was pulling out his hair at this particular point. What are you doing? You're not supposed to bless them. You're supposed to curse them. He goes, I can only say what God puts in my mouth. What are you getting all over me for? And so, yeah, even a person who is not belonging to the kingdom can be used by God to prophesy. He can use anyone that he wants. And so I, I mean that with total seriousness. There is hope for us. 
You know, we think, oh, God can't use me. If God can use a donkey, he can use us, right? So attempts had been made to kill Jesus before. After raising Lazarus, they deliberately counseled with one another how they could take his life, according to verse 53. It says there, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They didn't want anything happening to their little place in society. Verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Ephraim is north of Jerusalem, about as far as Jericho is to the east. It's not that far away, but it is a little podunk town uh, that Jesus went and hung out in. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up to the from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming for the feast of, at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where he was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. So clearly, everyone misunderstood what was taking place here. And it wasn't until afterwards. And the whole point of this was to show that Jesus was the resurrection and the life. He has power over death. That is chapter 11. Jesus has power over death. That's why we can trust him. And he did it in front of all of these witnesses. This thing was not done in a corner. Any questions? We're all good. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you just for the inspiration from your word. We thank you for the revealing to us, the revelation that Jesus was a man of sorrows, that he felt what we feel, or more correctly said, we feel what you feel. And help us even more so, Lord, to have a heart like yours, that we can weep for those who don't understand the effects of sin, that, Lord, when we lose somebody close, you would bring comfort to us so that we might comfort others in their distress. But we thank you for the story. We thank you for Lazarus, a faithful servant, and for Mary and Martha who were willing to suffer. And for Thomas, Lord, a man of faith who gave his life for you. We thank you for all of these individuals. May we be like them in spirit and in purpose. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. God bless you guys.